Hello, Classic Crew, and welcome to Classically Ever After, the Classically Abbey podcast with Jacob and Abby Roth. Three times a month, we will discuss the ins and outs of marriage and relationships, parenthood, classic living, and navigating the modern era while maintaining traditional values. From philosophy to practical advice, you'll find out what we really think. classic crew. Before we get into today's episode, you might notice that the mics are cutting in and out a bit, but we have ordered new mics. They are on their way. So next episode should be tip top. Now enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Classically Ever After. It's been a bit of time since we sat down and recorded. It's been a crazy few weeks, right? Yeah. So You've already announced this on your socials, Mm -hmm. so we can declare triumphantly, but not for the first time, that one of the crazy things is that we closed on and then moved into our first house. We did! It's so exciting! And we've rented houses before, and it was painful to go from renting a house with actual land to uh, the (laughs) unbelievably crappy apartment, but not unbelievably crappy, the proportionately very crappy apartment (laughs) that we were in, which was, uh, as I, it turns my stomach and makes me feel dishonored as a man to say this, it was simultaneously the most expensive place we've ever lived and the lowest quality place we've ever lived, you know, across build quality amenities, the actual merits of the unit itself, and then the management surrounding community. Really, it was just... Like a golden quintuple of garbage. <laughs> We've already almost double the price of the house that we were renting in Virginia. Yeah. It exactly. makes you want to put your eyes out with your thumbs. It's awful. <laughs> uh, We've already tried to get in touch with the management office a number of times just to tell them we in person, out. by email, Over the and phone, by phone. And they just won't take our calls. I think we need to they do won't carrier pigeon. See us. Yeah. Maybe that's yeah. the next step. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a collection of uh, goblin women who uh, sit there high on their perch, not doing their jobs and letting the entire development go to the pits. Or so we've heard from other people in our community who are also in this rental community (laughs) that a few years ago was beautiful, it was nice, and then just under these goblin women's reign, it declined (laughs) to uh, subhuman level of subsistence. And now, being in a home that we own, that we have control over, A, how it's designed, Dominion, sovereignty, but also how we get things solved and resolved. It's like a dream. In a way, it's kind of maybe God giving us the opportunity to go from the ridiculous to the sublime. Yes. Now, you know, to emphasize, we're not spoiled. We recognize that where we lived was not the absolute pits of experience. Yeah, well, we don't need that. We know. It's just that at the price being about double what we paid in Virginia, the fact that we got this trash pit <laughs> was uh, unbelievably irksome. But as they say, location, location, location. And that was really, truly the most important thing. We yes, got to experience, it was a good walk to our shul. It was a good walk to our synagogue, and it gave us the chance to experience the area before we actually bought a house. So that was a huge blessing. Yeah, and we only had a seven-month lease, mm-hmm. and we were there for about two months. Yeah, exactly. And so it's a lot of months to be on the hook for a place that's trash that you're still paying for. Whatever. We won't go into even more <laughs> details. Uh, so, yes, that is w- the first big disruption. Then there was Hurricane Ian. Yep. Maybe you heard about it. Uh, we experienced it, but in the mild form that uh, touched the east coast of Florida. It was not so bad as the apocalyptic storm that hit the west coast yep my parents live on the west coast they live within the path of the storm but they were far enough inland that they just lost power for a few days and that was the summit of uh, the issues that they had we lost power in our crappy apartment community because it's so poorly maintained it took them 36 hours to repair it it was just in our building just our building none of the other dozen units because we were in the worst of this bad sorry yeah i keep (laughs) distracting myself with rage when things are good um but thank god my family lives close enough that we were able to stay with family while we didn't have power you know living without power maybe as like a couple without a child perhaps you could handle but with a baby uh not ideal so also working from home also working from home exactly there was a lot of stressors there so that was stressful and then we had hand, foot, and mouth as a family. That was stressful. Yes. Uh, um, our boy is not in daycare, but other children in the community are in daycare. Mm-hmm. And so they passed it along to him, who passed it along to us. And this all kind of started to percolate during my boy's weekend, where I had a bunch of friends out. Um, and we spent a weekend playing Twilight Imperium. Yeah. 
uh, which again, I'm a very lucky man that my wife said that that's her favorite board game uh, or one. <laughs> You'll of. have to go back and listen to that yeah. episode if you've missed it, where we talked about our top board games. But continue. Yeah, that's kind of like a guy being so lucky, you know, for a more normal person is having a wife who's not just okay watching football, but is as enthusiastic a fan as he is. This mm-hmm. is the board gamer equivalent of it. Uh, but yeah, this all was developing during the boys weekend. So they really had to take over and run the game while I was dipping in and out to run errands and chores for the boy and Abigail. Uh, yeah. but yeah, so we had but... disease in the family. I was laid well <laughs> with fever for about three days and that rolled right into Rosh Hashanah, which is two days of holiday. Then following that we had Yom Kippur and also was it, we had Rosh Hashanah then that Friday, we moved into the house. Correct. Then that Wednesday was Yom Kippur, followed by the last uh, few days were Sukkot. And then we have another two days of holiday. Uh, I have to say my billable hours for September slash October are just a massacre. <laughs> well, welcome massacre to of PTO. Orthodox Judaism. Yeah. <laughs> Might make a lot more sense when you're on agricultural work schedule, but uh, <laughs> not so much with office life. So yeah, that's why it's been a little bit of time since we've sat down and recorded, but it's nice now that we're in the new place to just sit down and relax. Mr. Baby is asleep for the night and we are just chilling at the dining room table chatting about some interesting stuff today. So Before we go to try and finish the third season of Fauda. Exactly, which is great, (laughs) but we won't get into that quite yet. So today's episode, why don't you give the kind of overview of what we want to talk about? So recently for Abigail's AV Club, which was a lot of fun, her first uh, episode, meetup, meet up, whatever you would refer Zoom to chat, it as, yeah. her first session mm-hmm. of her AV Club, they all watched Breakfast at Tiffany's. Mm-hmm. I didn't watch with them. I was too busy with work, but I spoke with Abigail about the conversation they all had and her mm-hmm. description of the movie. And so that occurred. And then about a week later, I just watched Fight Club with Abigail. Um Oof. Yeah, I don't know why I decided that it was time that Abigail would watch Fight Club, <laughs> but it was time that yeah, Abigail would watch Fight rough, Club. It's rough, man. It's rough. We watched it over, I think, three nights because yes. uh, of the baby. But Fight Club is a movie that I watched do- literally dozens of times in high school because it is, is exactly the kind of movie that you can watch dozens of times as a male in high school, mm-hmm. which is going to be part of what we discuss. That and American Psycho. And then also <laughs> Casablanca, because my mother loved it. We would watch Casablanca many times. Mm-hmm. But really, American Psycho and Fight Club were two movies I watched way too much as a teenager that do not... Uh, they hold up in terms of filmmaking now, but in terms of my impression of them, of course, at 28, I have a different perspective than I did at 14. One would hope, one would imagine. <laughs> but, but when we watched Fight Club and I had just watched Breakfast at Tiffany's, Jacob started drawing these comparisons that I thought were really interesting. And he mentioned we should do a podcast about it. Yes. And that would be that. And again, I know I didn't watch Breakfast at Tiffany's, but, uh, you know. I gave him the lay of the land. If I'm wrong about it, leave a comment on the podcast. I don't (laughs) predict that I'll be wrong for purposes of this conversation, but you can always correct me. The impression I got comparing the two movies is that's very interesting. The main character, Holly Golightly, of Breakfast at Tiffany's is an interesting example of what you might call hyper-femininity. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to spoil Fight Club because it's a movie that came out in 1999, and so that's on you if you haven't seen it. Uh, the <laughs> but main, spoiler alert. Yeah, one of the main characters slash the alter ego idealized self of the actual main character of Fight Club, Tyler Durden, is an example of hyper-masculinity. Mm-hmm. And when I say that, what I mean is... In the same way that scientists can do experiments on animals in like their mating rituals, where let's say you have a bird that grows a long tail in the males, and scientists can just clip on like an addition to the tail, like a hair extension for the male birds. So you're creating a super stimulus. Mm-hmm. You're creating an example of the tail that does not exist in nature. In fact, could not and would not exist in nature. It's far beyond the bounds of what the instincts and we'll say genetic programming of the female birds that species are designed to account for. And that's a super stimulus. And when the females encounter that, they become fixated on the super stimulatory tail. It's not as if nature has natural boundary points like, oh, well, this is out of proportion when it comes to these <laughs> things that desire is instinctually built around. 
I'm going to call it quits on this. Let me go with the normal version. No, a super stimulus just keeps going. Um, a very relevant modern example of this is pornography. Pornography is a super stimulus of sexual attraction. The novelty, the um, accessibility, all the things that go into it is a super stimulus of a buffet of sexual attraction and things like that. So hypermasculinity and hyperfemininity are the, we'll say, super stimulatory versions of what masculine traits look like mm -hmm. and feminine traits look like. And so when we're talking, when we were talking about Breakfast at Tiffany's, the description of the Holly Golightly main character sounded like an example of hyperfemininity to me. She is a performance of femininity. The character herself is performing her femininity in a way that goes beyond all normal and like purposeful versions of what feminine traits are in order to attract men. And the Tyler Durden character in Fight Club is an overly desirable overperformance of things that could make a man attractive as an ideal for other men to live out, but also to women. And it's just interesting that interplay and what it kind of means about that topic. Yeah, exactly. And so we're going to kind of just discuss that comparison, what it means in today's day and age, also just what it means for relationships, what people think the other kind of sex wants and what they really want. Uh, but before we get into the bulk of today's episode, make sure to listen to the end so that you can hear our antonym of the week. And this week we're going to be discussing stuff we like and stuff we hate. So that'll be at the end. But now let's hop into the main portion. So we kind of already started talking about it. So now let's uh, get into it. Yeah. So if you want to go into the topic of Holly Gold Whiteley and Breakfast at Tiffany's a little bit, just to give more background for the audience, because I imagine that a goodly portion, if not most, maybe even all mm -hmm. of the people listening have seen Breakfast at Tiffany's or intimately familiar with it. Uh, but in case they aren't, if you could give a little bit of background on it and what about this character could be hyperfeminine. So the story of Breakfast at Tiffany's is actually kind of complicated. Um, I think most people know it from just the image of Audrey Hepburn that has been plastered everywhere, Andy Warhol style, her kind of black and white and with a cigarette holder wearing pearls. But what's so funny about the character of Holly Golightly is that she's actually a call girl an escort. She's not the epitome of classic that she looks to be. Um, she, which is actually very much into the point about hyper femininity when we get to that, which is that she's a consumable version of the idea of being classy. Yes, exactly. So her character is one that the first moment you see her, she is doing the walk of shame. I mean, she is walking around the early morning of New York after having spent a night out. And that's kind of indicative of who she is. When is this movie set? This movie set in the 60s. And Holly's character, you know, in the book and in the movie is a little different. But let's talk about it in the movie because that's what's relevant here. Um, she is a woman who ran away from her past where at 14 she was married to uh, an older farmer. He tried to make her the stepmother to his children. She ran away. She ended up in New York trying to make a life for herself as a call girl in order to support her brother, who is now in the army. And hopefully when he gets out, he's dim-witted. So he needs to be taken care of. So she's trying to save money, but she's terrible at it because she's not the smartest girl in the world herself. And her character is very attracting in the sense that she opens up very quickly to strangers and acts as though she she knows you from the moment she meets you. Um, she's overly friendly. She climbs into bed with a guy she just met and not in a sexual way, just because she wants to sleep next to him, which is not that weird in today's day and age, sadly. <laughs> I think girls do that more and more. Um, just if they're living alone in New York and they meet someone they want to share a bed with, oh, they'll just do it. Oh, we're friends. Exactly. Oh, yeah. But, you know, for the 60s, that's that's a kind of a new thing. And her character is just very hyper feminine. So when you say that here, because I was giving my little description before, but what is feminine about these traits you described or other traits about her? Like, what is the feminine starting point? And then how is her performance of it like even more so, even like above average for it? So I would say that 
a staple of being a woman is that you are physically weaker than men. That is just that is just true. That's truth. A fundamental, a fundamental feature. A fundamental feature. Hyperfemininity leans into that and makes you a damsel in distress. So it's not just weak physically. Now you're weak all over. <laughs> you're weak mentally. You're weak emotionally. You need to be saved. And that is a very attractive feature for men. I mean, the idea to make them feel valorized into into the knight in shining armor. By, yeah, by the nature of the role you set yourself up for, make the man feel attractive because needed, because strong. It's a uh, it's kind of like what people might say is like business advice for an mm -hmm. underling, which is never speak in a manner that makes your boss look stupid. Right. Never make yourself look better than your boss. Do everything you can to make your boss look good and have an easier time of things. That, but kind of flipped around to a woman acting in a manner to make the man feel hyper-masculine, to make him right. feel like the stereotype role of a man and how he's needed. And to be fair, her character does need to be saved. She does. She is a damsel in distress. I don't think that she plays that up. I think her character is drawn that way on purpose because of the life she's led. But it is a very heightened level of damsel in distress, of weakness, but of femininity. It, so that sounds like more of like a, a meta concept that like the rest of it leads to. Mm -hmm. But in terms of her bearing and how she acts like interpersonally, her mannerisms and those kind of features about her, what else is feminine? Does she have like a hyper feminine voice and aspect and conversational style? One thing you mentioned, which strikes me as a very feminine thing is the warmth and the engagement, that kind of like feminine thing where you, you make a domestic atmosphere that is inviting and you handle a social network to build bonds between people. Mm -hmm. That kind of uh, mother hen, kind of, like uh, when we're talking about Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and what's the name of the- Millie. Millie. The way that Millie handles the relationships between the brothers and actually makes it a cohesive family. Mm -hmm. And that's a very feminine role is to actually manage the garbage that men bring up between themselves and others and clean that up into a functioning social network. Right. She seems like she's a socialite. She brings people in. She makes connections between people. She hosts parties is the impression that I got. Yeah. And she fosters relationships within two seconds that are not actually real. Mm -hmm. She like makes people feel really comfortable in her home, makes people feel like they're very close to her because she opens up to them so quickly. And that creates a sense of closeness with someone that's false. She, it, she may feel that way, but it's not, it's not realistic. You can't be close to someone that quickly, even if you want to be. And that is also, I, I think that's kind of playing into what you're saying is a real version of femininity is creating a domestic home is creating a place where people feel warm and safe, but it's something that has to be kind of earned over time. Well, it's based upon mutual loyalty, mm -hmm. right? You real closeness is, if this person needed you, needed you to make sacrifices in terms of your time, in terms of like resources, maybe even risking you taking damage socially or financially, even physically, career, whatever it is, like for you to help this person, you would have to not pursue the things that are uh, valuable to you. But hey, you're going to do it because you're loyal to this person. That's real closeness. Mm -hmm. If you're not willing to make actual sacrifices for someone and the same on their part for you, then you just know a lot of details about each other. And you might be very familiar with the idea of the other person and might be very familiar with them conversationally, but you don't mean anything to each other because you wouldn't put each other above anything you actually care about. Right. So real closeness and real intimacy is that willingness to sacrifice that loyalty, even if it's just time. And so she doesn't sound like she's doing that. It sounds like no. she's just fostering a sense of familiarity and supposed intimacy, but it's all a mirage built up around how she like brings you in to make you feel like, oh, we're developing something. Oh, we're building something. Oh, wow. And then- Well, every, nah. and everything that Holly does is uh, to put up fences. She's always very guarded because of everything that's happened to her. And she can't develop true intimacy in the way that you describe which is the whole lesson of the movie is that by the end of the film, she meets someone who forces her to reckon with the fact that people belong to one another. Mm -hmm. And, and that that mutual loyalty is the foundation of what actually matters in life. Correct. But it takes her the, the whole film literally till the very last minute for her to come to terms with that. And because of that, she uses her femininity, her sexuality mm -hmm. to protect herself and in, a, in doing so hurts herself. Yeah. Well, what's uh, funny from the way that you 
describe the movie and also me overhearing some of the scenes. Uh, so her hyper femininity is, is literally a consumable good in the sense yes. that she is a call girl. And so the arrangement is she gives vibes. I mean, mm-hmm. she, she's a vibe master. Right. Uh, and I mean that in a very figurative social sense. Um, <laughs> she goes on dates with guys and is like an attractive companion to have mm-hmm. so that the man is perceived in a certain way by others. So she is companion to a man as a consumable good. Her company is yes. consumable for others. Then the experience for the guy who is, uh, you know, renting her time He's getting the vibe of a charming woman doting on him in his words, who's fun and bubbly and energetic and represents so much potential and is so effervescent and fun. So she's selling the idea of that, and her lifestyle is an entire sequence of consumable moments and aesthetic posing, but nothing that underlies it, nothing that would actually validate it. Yeah, and then on the top of that, the kind of going back to what are, what are the things that are super hyper-feminine about her, it's... It's all a, her femininity, because it is Audrey Hepburn, is very easy. So she can literally go from wearing, you know, pajamas one minute to putting on a beautiful dress, putting on a tiny bit of makeup and being ready to go in 10 minutes and looking utterly fabulous. That's her, that's her kind of character is that she can slap on femininity, the trappings of femininity in 10 minutes flat. Mm -hmm. And it works like it's very attracting to everyone around her. And I remember hearing once this idea of the difference between being attractive and being attracting. And I think hyper femininity goes very much into the attracting uh, part of that equation. Attract being attractive is, is a lovely thing. Doing something that's kind of beautiful, but not in a way where you're specifically putting yourself out there to be noticed. Mm-hmm. And hyper femininity is I need to attract in order to feel something, in order to feel valued, in order to feel special, in order to and feel desired. To do that. And it has the ability to do that because, because it is attracting. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it reminds me of when I was uh, college or whatever. I just remember, I forgot who I was having a discussion with, but the notion, the difference between like, beautiful or like hot and sexy. Yeah. And like there are women out there, and I guess it applies to guys too. I, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's not what I pay attention to. Um, but there are women who are sexy, but the underlying merits of their beauty aren't there or whatever. Mm-hmm. But there's just some aspect about some women that is sexy in the sense of they are attracting of attention. And you know, as you get older and such as you're married, you're like very put off yeah. by this because you know it's a pose. You know it's someone doing something, whatever their reasons for it, whether it's sinister, selfish, or like, a broken uh, relationship to relationship, whatever. I don't care. That's not the point. Mm-hmm. The point is just that there are people who have a manner of being that is putting a certain vibe out there and attracting attention mm-hmm. versus something that's merely attractive or merely beautiful, which is passive, can be noticed and appreciated, but it's not, it's not trying to achieve something. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Holly the Lightly character, the entire point is her literal job but also the way that she goes through life is this sequence of attracting poses. She exists to be consumed, but also so that she can consume moments of like, well, I'm with this guy tonight and it's charming and it's a wonderful occasion, but there's no actual underlying merit that would it make it. And then it never, and then it never moves anywhere because, else. Well, no, and it's, it's often puts her in a position of, I'm just supposed to be here to spend time with you. I'm not necessarily looking to go home with you. And the men don't, are not able to see that difference mm-hmm. uh, or choose not to. So she's putting herself in danger constantly. And one of the things I wanted to mention, which I thought was interesting about her character, and I didn't notice on first watch because you're so taken in by by the film itself, is Holly, is as a character, is rather selfish in that when somebody expresses concern or expresses um, that she upset them, she kind of brushes it off. Now, there are times that she does sweet things for the character that she ends up with, but... What's his face? <laughs> she calls him Fred because that's her uh, her brother's name, and they look similar. But I'm trying to remember what his name is in actuality. Um, in any case, she uh, she often just brushes off anybody who says, some, says that she hurt their feelings. She just doesn't want to think about it. She's superficially pleasant, but not actually a good person. Right. And that is an unattractive quality when you're when you're watching the film. 
And it's something that a woman can do and sort of get away with if she plays it off as cute or unthinking. And it's not actually a feminine thing to do. It's like a hyper feminine thing to do. Is to yeah, it ignores the substance that would validate like what femininity's positive role is mm -hmm. and instead goes with what you can get away with and play it off like how you complain to feminine tropes. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, there's two sides to anything. There's the version of femininity, which is concerned with relationships and intimacy and building real bonds between people. And also empathy is a very big part of femininity. It's what leads into like the basically manager of the household and its dynamic, like heart of the family kind of stuff. But at the same time, the positive aspect of femininity, which is lightness and gaiety. The dark side of that would be Thought, like, thoughtlessness. Uh, was it frivolity? Frivolity, like uh, a nonchalance and toying with others. Yeah. Uh, there are guys who toy with others too, but that's a kind of different vibe. What we're talking about here is that like feminine way to kind of be insouciant and frivolous. I mean, that is the best word is yeah. to be kind of malignantly frivolous and well, so she's and able to like achieve that and play it off and she's charming and she can pretend she doesn't know what she's doing right but it is absolutely kind of like throwing a dagger into people's hearts as she does it and i think that this fits into what i was saying at the beginning which is this playing into the feminine weakness which let's be clear women may be fed maybe physically weaker than men but we are incredibly strong and that is mm -hmm. our huge value as people is that we are the rock for our families. We are the rock for our husbands, for our children. And that means we do take responsibility. So we it take responsibility. You can and should. That the best version of still femininity be avoided, yeah. are those that that encourage you to take responsibility you for your actions because you can and you should. Yeah. And because Holly's character is the hyper feminine, is weak in you know, she's weak, not just physically, but emotionally and mentally. She doesn't take responsibility for her actions. Well, it's a calculated pose. Like she doesn't have to be intelligent to not be suffering because she's not brilliant, mm -hmm. right? She doesn't have to be brilliant to like not just be crippled by her uh, slow wits. Uh, and, and she's not stupid. Yeah, that's what that's what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, it's yeah. like she doesn't have to be brilliant here. It's that she does the feminine role that you were describing by drawing people in, by making them feel valued for like assisting her with things and seeming so close and so appreciative or whatever. But she uses this calculated pose of, oh, you're needed. Oh, you're amazing to make herself come across as weak and in need and therefore incapable of offense mm -hmm. or incapable of causing harm. Right. And like, this is the big error with the garbage version of modern feminist thinking, which is women are oppressed victims system, uh, systematically uh, in a manner that basically is just an application of Marxist class warfare principles to mm -hmm. men and women. But because women are systematically oppressed, they therefore are incapable of meaningful malice or doing things wrong. And so it means that women who have this garbage version of feminist mentality when they have that, they do not hold themselves accountable for being bad. They don't hold any woman accountable for being bad because they don't think women have the potency to be bad. We're weak and oppressed, or maybe not even weak, but we are oppressed and victimized. And the victim can never be a victimizer. That is an inherent principle that's believed. And so you end up with women who are absolutely toxic, absolutely sinister and malicious, and give themselves moral license to do that. And any allies or men or whatever who are also on board with this mentality enable that as well. This is that pre-feminist version of it where just on the interpersonal level, she knows she can play off weakness to get away with things. And so her feigned weakness is a form of strength because it means she's not accountable. And what is strength if not being able to do what you want without people being able to do anything about it, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. So I want to talk a little bit about how this isn't actually good for men, that men who are attracted to hyperfemininity don't end up with what they think they're ending up with. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering about saving this for after we talked about say, Fight Club, but I think it's actually going to talk about it now because mm -hmm. we're on a roll with it. And I don't know that I have really anything to compare Breakfast at Tiffany's and Fight Club over other than that at a like a one week moment in time, we happened to like, well, you watched one and then we together watched the other. And they both offer an example 
in their own way, respectively, of hyperfeminity, hypermasculinity. But I don't think I have any thesis to compare the two. I think it's just they each provide an example of their own phenomenon that's interesting to talk about. Well, I think that there's a thesis to compare Ooh. because I think that generally what we're doing is we're saying, here's what the most extreme version of, you know, femininity, Femin masculinity trackings, yeah. looks like. And here's why it's not actually as attractive to the other sex as you think. And I think the, that right in and of itself is the thesis, is the comparative thesis. So we can resolve this one so coming to an end. When we talk about Fight Club, we can get more into this. But where I disagree with that thesis is I don't think Fight Club portrays other than so Brad Pitt is the guy who plays the hypermasculine character we're discussing, Tower Durden. Other than it literally being Brad Pitt and him <laughs> having a shirtless scene where you see his sick abs, bro. Other than that, I don't think there's any aspect of the hypermasculinity portrayed by his character that is in the realm of the style of hypermasculinity you would talk about that would be attractive to women. I think that'd be more like a stupid modern superhero movie thing like Chris Hemsworth as Thor. His body is an example of hypermasculinity because it's literally steroidal and he's handsome like Chris Hemsworth. But the degenerate filth monster that is Tyler Durden, it doesn't offer anything to women. There's like so no attractiveness the to the opposite sex. Is the attractiveness it offers to women and the trap that they would fall into in order to be impressive to men. In the, and Sorry, we're talking versa. about Breakfast at Tiffany's? We're, or we're talking about Breakfast at Tiffany's yeah. and, and vice versa. So for women, they might look at a Holly Golightly and say, well, she is attractive to men, so maybe I should be doing what she is doing. And a, ty and a boy like you were in high school might look at Tyler and say, well, he must be attractive to women, so maybe I should be doing what he's doing. So I think you're more... So I think you're right about the Fight Club thing. Uh, it's also just like not just the women aspect because, okay, it's Brad Pitt in good shape. So that must be attractive to women. But like it's the sense of sovereignty thing about the Tower Jordan character, which we'll get into when we talk about Fight Club. But what you're describing is like the image of the lifestyle seems like it'd be enjoyable in some way or it's attractive to want to be this, this person. person. That I, th I want to talk about more with The Breakfast at Tiffany's and The Holly Go Lightly because you and I refer to Sex in the City as the example of this all the time. Like the meme idea that misleads women to thinking this lifestyle prepackaged and sold to me with its like highlights real presentation. Mm -hmm. That must be the lifestyle to want to lead. I want to pursue that. And then it goes nowhere good and right. fast. The Breakfast at Tiffany's Holy Go Lightly, you see in-universe how her hyperfemininity is attractive to men, but then the viewing audience, it's not like men are looking at the Audrey Hepburn character and like, oh, well, that's a woman. I No man I've ever met really talks about Breakfast at Tiffany's or thinks about that. It's just not a famous rendition of femininity that men think about. It's more women look at that and are taken with the classy Audrey Hepburn with her little cigarette holder thing. So I want to talk about that, well, the so hyperfemininity as an attractive meme for women, women to think that is like appealing to live. Yeah, and I think that that's an, an interesting thing is that we often get caught up in the attractiveness to the other sex. But really, there's a lot of us do things that are attractive because they look attractive to other women in a sense. Psst, big secret. Going to the gym as a guy past a very early point and trying to be big or muscular just for dudes it doesn't make it gay or make it bad that's fine it's good to want to be strong but you are doing it for men you want to be impressive to other men you want to feel like a man amongst men because you want status within a male hierarchy that's the point which again is fine and is not gay but it is totally just for other men and psst, women when we do a smoky eye it's really for other women. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Most men are not really into the crazy makeup. They just want to see something a little bit nicer on your eyelashes and yes. maybe a little bit of concealer. Well, let's be clear. If women really wanted to do things for men in terms of their attractiveness and not as a performance of skill and like whatever for other women, more women would focus less on makeup and clothing and more on diet and exercise, <laughs> and, uh, which is That's very funny. much the thing. And more guys would focus upon basic social skills and income rather than uh, a lot of other things. Uh, but that's, <laughs> or maybe that's a men, more point. men would focus on cutting than bulking. <laughs> well, it depends on the guy. Women, Depending on the guy. I, I will tell you, and I can guarantee you this is the case. 
more women would want an overweight guy and doesn't have to be obese, but like a fatter, bigger guy than a skinny guy. Mm-hmm. Women are not attracted to weakness, like physical weakness. Women are really not attracted. The individual woman yeah, say, can be attracted to the individual depends, guy. Yeah, yeah no, it, the individual mm-hmm. woman can be attracted to the individual guy and it can be fine. But on net, women really do not like physical apparent weakness in men. Right. They would rather kind of fatness. <laughs> Yeah, especially if it's confident. True enough. Which confident always is the thing, is the but thing. confident fat guy wins over confident skinny guy. <laughs> I'm not talking lean. I mean skinny, like your legs and arms are the same width, like just <laughs> skinny guy. So going back a bit, um, what's so interesting, I want to, there's like a few, a million thoughts rolling through my head and I want to touch on all of them. Because yeah, which I is why I wanted so to stay on the Breakfast at Tiffany's topic so before we move to I want to, I feel like I need to make some bullet points so I remember. Okay, make verbal bullet points. Verbal bullet points. One is the the way that the left looks at Breakfast at Tiffany's versus mm. what the movie's actually trying to get across. And number two, the second thing I want to talk about is how Holly Golightly's single life in New York has now become a standard for a lot of women in New York. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is... You mean all the writing staff of She-Hulk? <laughs> Sorry, exactly. I've been watching the Critical Drinkers videos on She-Hulk, and it just seems like the most inevitable result of people raised with sex in the city culture. And for those who don't know, the Critical Drinker is a YouTube channel. So um, <laughs> in any case, when we were doing the AV Club, I pulled up a quote from an article I had found, and it was so indicative of the way people on the left view Breakfast at Tiffany's. And the thing to know is that in the book, there is no happy ending. Holly does not end up with anyone. She disappears into, you know, South Africa or South America, rather. Yeah, and she goes to Brazil, does she not? They is don't it still know. Brazil it's in the kind book, of unclear. Or? No, no. In the in the book, they just someone hears. It's just that, the content. Oh, we heard that she's in South America, and that's all they know. Like she's just disappeared and, and isn't relevant anymore. And in the film, she ends up with someone and is going to have a happy life theoretically. But the. Like uh, the so-called Hollywood ending, except as we'll discuss, it's a far superior ending from a narrative perspective. As well, yeah. So in this article, this writer says it's very offensive that they made a an ending where she has to end up with someone and be saved when she's living her best single <laughs> life in New York City. Now, if you watch the film, it is indubitably clear how unhappy Holly is. There is nothing happy about her lifestyle and what she's doing. She's constantly being harassed by men who are trying to force their way into her apartment. She's- And she's doing it on a consistent basis, despite the fear and like the danger and the upsetting aspect of this, which is an inherent aspect of the actual profession that she does night in and night out as it were rather than day in and day out she still does it right and i drink to forget that i hate myself because i drink to forget (laughs) yeah and she and so she's clearly very very unhappy and by the end when she realizes that this is not the lifestyle that's going to in any way bring her happiness even marrying a man for his money wouldn't bring her happiness because as my grandmother would say if you marry someone for their money you earn every penny (laughs) <laughs> she uh, she ends up with somebody who is in a similar life as she is. He's a male escort and realizes his own mistake. And they realize that together by together, they need a lot of antibiotics. That too. <laughs> but by investing their love and energy into each other, then their lives can actually have fulfillment and meaning. Yeah. And it's a beautiful ending in the film. But well, women- say, say the line, right? Like it's about people belonging to each other. Yeah, he said, I'm trying to remember the exact line, but it's funny because in today's vernacular, it sounds objectionable. It sounds upsetting, but he says something to the effect of people belong to other people. Oh, he says, you belong to me. That's what he says. Those exact words. You belong to me. Mm -hmm. And when you hear it nowadays, you're like, people don't belong to people. And then you realize when you love someone and they love you back, you do belong to that person. You owe each other. You're not just defined by some... Uh, absolutely concocted, idiotically philosophized sense of freedom. No one is free. Sorry, this is a conversation that Abigail and I have, which we should absolutely make another podcast about. 
Uh, my dad is much more libertarian and kind of like freedom appreciating than I am. Uh, I am not. Uh, I've become more religious over time, as we discussed. But at this point, I basically just tell my dad in a lot of our conversations, freedom doesn't exist. It's an illusion. <laughs> it's fake. I, what I mean when I say that is the sense of freedom that defines this Holly Golightly thing of no one owes each other anything. And it is good to live in a manner in which you are not tied down and none of your freedom is taken from you. That's a worldview which someone came up with based upon thinking real hard about abstract principles of this should be the case. I want it to be the case. So that's my starting point. Freedom is inherent good. It's somehow more authentic. And authenticity, I've decided, is good because it sounds appealing. The meme is delightful to my ears. So you start from that premise, and then you just reason down to, well, if it should be this, then inherently it should be that. It should be that. Mm -hmm. So if authenticity is what matters and owning yourself is what matters because freedom is the best thing because, well, it's an attractive sounding principle, then you reason from that that, well, I don't owe my family anything. I was accidentally born into this family and I'm free of obligations to them. And it's not good to be married because they'll be tied to another person. I should be free to leave at any time if my utility is diminished by being in this. And having children, I should owe my child nothing except maybe a basic moral thing, but maybe not even then. And when they hit 18, they're free of me. It's purely abstract. It's not something that you would develop from understanding people as they are and will continue to be, it's something that you come up with and then you want to cram life into. I'm reading a great book right now by Yoram Hazoni, an American-Israeli political philosopher. It's called Conservatism, colon, A Rediscovery. It's fantastic. I'm loving it. I'm more than halfway through and I don't anticipate that I'm going to stop loving the book. Heavily recommend it. But he has a great uh, juxtaposition in his book between a conservative approach to the world, which is you live and from living, you develop an awareness of what appears to work and what is true. And he's not saying here that truth is purely pragmatic and subjective. Well, you find what works for you. No, you find what works consistently over time. You discover to be true from living and it's going to apply to other people, but also everyone's kind of different. And so the workable version of this truth, it applies differently to people. It's in the same way that you can't give general parenting advice. You have to parent the individual child. There are right and wrong answers for that child based upon core truths but you can't literally parent every child the same way. Mm -hmm. So his vision of conservatism is this bottom-up thing over time that's inheritance, and he juxtaposes that with enlightenment rationalist liberalism, which comes up with a series of principles based upon basically their meme potential, but for philosophy, so it sounds more impressive, and then saying, well, this must be the case for everyone everywhere all the time because these are universal principles, and regardless of outcome or result— I know these to be true in the abstract. Therefore, it's just people failing the principles, not principles failing the people. So it's kind of a, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> I figured I was, I was kind of sitting there going, I don't know how much this relates to hyperfemininity, but it's still interesting. So I'm no, let you I, I'm, I'm joking. It was my train of thought. <laughs> and it relates back to the idea, the modern popular idea that what Holly is saying, which is so clearly wrong and bad for her, and it's her expression of her broken mentality right before she finally relents and accepts happiness, yeah. of, oh, freedom is the important thing. No one belongs to anyone. I need my independence, and that is strength, and that is good, and that is desirable. And so this female writer who's critiquing the movie, and it's changes from the books, saying, well, Holly was Holly had to be doing well because she was living out according to the right abstract principles of freedom. Mm. But then you watch it, and as a human being watching a story but about another human being, but watching another human being, you know, yes, obviously her lifestyle was bad for her, and obviously belonging to pseudo-Fred at the end and pseudo fred belonging to her is the right and true thing we can recognize that truth and we know that if there were an arbitrarily concocted ending where she's free and we're told oh no this is what makes her happy this is better we'd know we'd be propagandized and that's why it's so interesting because that leads to the second point i wanted to make which is we now live in a culture where what she's doing besides being paid for it is what women do they live <laughs> alone in new york Hey, sleeping around. with OnlyFans, they still get paid for it. And they can work from home. Exactly. Well, we're not talking about that. But yeah, it is It is a thing where you have these women who have, have been sold the lie that this is what happiness looks like. And if they watched Breakfast at Tiffany's, 
maybe they would believe this narrative that this woman is this author was trying to write and they are leaning into a picture of hyper femininity that looks really attracting to women because you look and you see a woman when a woman is attracted to men there's something i think as a woman that makes you go what am i doing wrong that i should be doing so that i get their attention and you neglect to go okay but how far does that attraction go how far does that male attraction go? Does it go beyond one night? Does it go to, I want to marry this girl. I want to have children with this girl. And it's hard to like parse that out because I think that there is a, and probably a, a, a biological pull to be attractive to men because you just want to have children. So you don't necessarily notice that like, oh, there's a difference between these two things. There's a difference between a guy who wants to marry you and a guy who wants to sleep with you. But as a woman, we want to be attractive. And so you watch this film where this girl is getting all this attention. Holly's getting all this attention. She looks like she's living in New York and it's a, it's theoretically a nice lifestyle, even though you can see she's totally distraught. And it's got great it's, meme potential. And oh it's my very, God. It's glamorous. It's a, it's, a it's a meme. Yeah. And that is, I think the inevitable downfall of women leaning into something like hyper femininity. Yeah. I, I just had the thought right now as you were describing that kind of a bitter irony. I'm thinking here of Andrew Tate. Are you familiar with who yes. this character is? Yeah. So he's apparently very successful in the TikTok realm, which is why I'm only passingly familiar with him mm-hmm. because I'm not his target demo being a married 28 year old man with a child. He's also <laughs> religious. Uh, it's more for the, was it 15 to 21 year old set, whatever it be. Uh, of boys looking for how to be an attractive and confident, assertive man. Mm -hmm. And what I was thinking is that for a lot of women, the attractive, like the sense of being attractive that they would like is being able to build a good life and attract a Mm -hmm. good man and lock that down. And they can end up failing at it and attracting a lot of men for shallow relationships and end up sweeping around. Not that you accidentally, you accident into it, but based on misguided calculations, you think that that might be the good strategy and your failure version is to have a lot of guys attracted to you, but none who want to stay. And the meme version for men, because young men are stupid and overly attracted to too many women, uh, the meme version for men is they want a lot of shallow attraction from a lot of women (laughs) and to be able to sleep around. And so from their point of view, they would be a failure if they just got the attraction of like one nice girl who wants to be their girlfriend. (laughs) And it's just funny to me that it's uh, it's like this inversion. Yeah. Well, now that we're pretty far into this podcast, (laughs) maybe we should discuss Fight Club a little bit. So why don't you uh, give us- Maybe it should only be a breakfast at Tiffany's podcast. You think? It could possibly be the case. I it might well be. Well, maybe we that just we need call this part fight. one. Yes. I think that might be the move. I think that's the move because definitely Fight Club is its own long conversation because also you're going to make it into a film review and I don't think it's a bad idea, <laughs> but you got a lot of thoughts <laughs> I do. about the movie as a movie. But I also have thoughts then, about the, the Oh, I'm not thought. saying you don't. I'm saying you have both. Yeah. So why don't we call it here and talk about our engine of the week before we close out? <laughs> So this is part one of yes, this discussion. Is. You've been here for the determination and deliberation. <laughs> we have decided now that this is a mere part one of two. Yeah, let's say two. Two. A provisional two parts <laughs> on the subject of hyperfemininity and its um, comparison and contrast with hypermasculinity. Yep. So now let's talk about our engine of the week, which is stuff we like and stuff we hate. Yes, going classic with it. Yes. Classic Daily Wire. Class vintage <laughs> 2016 to 20... However long they used to do the bit. <laughs> I don't know. So why don't you start with your stuff you All like? right. Stuff I like. I like fat babies. No, oh, they're the best. Uh, fat babies are the best Who babies. doesn't like a fat baby? Uh, I have relatives. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but our boy was born in the 65th percentile of weight. Now, statistically, that's an above averagely plump baby. I don't know if it's full fat territory, but it's still a decent weight. And because of his reflux, because he's at least 75% Ashkenaz, uh, Ashkenazic Jew, like European Jew, uh, infamous for stomach issues. Mm -hmm. He had tremendous acid reflux issues. He was very spit uppy. He's still very spit uppy, but he couldn't really nurse properly. And he had a lot of issues with that. So his weight 
percentile declined uh, by about the fourth week, fifth week of life. So he was down to 24th percentile at his four-week checkup, and that was no bueno. So we did a follow-up appointment the next week, and he was down to the ninth percentile, which means that he weighed more than only 9% of babies. 91% of babies are bigger than my boy, which is unacceptable. we got to pump up those numbers. <laughs> so Abigail really did work tirelessly at this. I mean, tirelessly. Actual sleeplessness a lot of the time because she was workshopping the baby and his latch and his nursing so that he could eat because we didn't want to go into a formula slash that was not a viable option because where was the formula to be had? Right. And she wanted to get this done for him. And she did. And so his weight stabilized. And then miraculously at about the three month mark, his percentile started to climb. Now, doctors are concerned if the baby drops percentiles because why is he losing ground on his growth chart? But once you're in a stabilized groove and you are growing steadily, you know, you're consistently ninth percentile. So the rate you're putting weight on just keeps you in that ninth percentile. They're fine with that. They do not mind. Hey, there's got to be a baby who's in the ninth percentile. There's got to be a baby who's in the third percentile. Someone's got to be it. As long as they're still growing and everything's developing, we're good to go. But my boy and my wife, they wouldn't settle. My baby was born at 65th percentile, and he was not going to accept a loss. <laughs> and so recently, like last month, he really had gained a lot of ground, and he started to climb up into the 40s. And now, as of earlier this week, he was in the 63rd percentile, which really is amazing. Also, we, we got a, like average scores here. It's like taking APs in high school and having your grade point average weighted. He's a breastfed baby, only ever. And then now with the introduction of like some mushy carrots or mushy peas, whatever, but that's kind of relevant <laughs> for a purpose. Formula babies are bigger babies because all the stuff that goes into formula makes you nice and a fat. <laughs> and my baby didn't have that benefit. He didn't have performance enhancing formula <laughs> and he still is climbing the charts. So now he's statistically bigger than 63% of babies, all because of Abigail's yeoman's, or I guess in this case, yo woman's work and i am just so intensely proud of her and i look at my baby and his legs got fat first but now his arms are getting a little fat and now <laughs> his cheeks are getting plump and it's just the best when we look at old photos of him taken when he was eight weeks old he is so thin yeah it's so it's so thin it was striking and horrifying and really upsetting to look at i mean not upsetting in the manner of an actual horror show. It's just, he looks thin. Yeah. Not ribs, but thin. His limbs are lean. What the heck is a lanky baby? What does that <laughs> even mean? They should all be chubby Michelin men. And so now I have a baby who's more of a Michelin man. And I am so happy. Yeah, it's really awesome. I mean, it's super fun, first of all. And every time I pick him up in the morning, I'm like, it's oh my heavy. gosh, you're heavy now. What's what's he at? Uh, he's 18, more than 18 and a half pounds. Yeah, so he's doing really good, which is awesome. And we're so happy. And I have to say, we've talked about this probably more than enough on our podcast because this has been such a big part of our lives is his reflux and him mm -hmm. gaining weight. But, you know, early on when he would spit up, it was physically, not, I mean, physically painful for him, but it was emotionally painful for me. It was mm -hmm. really, really hard to see because I just knew that he needed those calories and it was just awful. And once he got to the point where his weight stabilized and he was gaining weight and he was climbing the, the, the growth charts, it's I'm like, I don't care how much you spit up. You could spit up literally all day, all over everything. And I wouldn't care because you're not in pain and you're gaining weight. So this is just a laundry problem. Yes. We can handle that. Well, we can, except I'm about to say <laughs> the stuff I hate. <laughs> should I say the stuff I like first or should you do you want to do both of yours? I'm going to do both of okay, mine go. because it's a perfect weed and stuff I hate. When you buy a house and you got the new novel annoyances of all the piddly little problems that come with a house. Yeah. Like, um, well, to start, the fact that the washing machine is half lobotomized. Yeah. What I mean by that is it's an attractive looking machine. What's the brand on it? Samsung. Samsung. Uh, apparently more than a decade old. Doesn't necessarily look it. It's a top loader. It's got an irritating jingle that goes off every time you use it. But it seems effective. It seems fine. It's a big old boy, so it can do a lot of laundry. But then it stopped turning on. Yes, it did. Now, why did it stop turning on? 
we're not fundamentally certain, but we did call an appliance handyman who came over. And the first thing he did based upon, you know, okay, we're going to flip the circuit breaker. We're going to plug, unplug it. Doesn't seem to be doing anything. So he unscrews the back panel where all the computer circuitry is. And the mere opening up of that back panel, it turned on. It started wow. working. Amazing. Yeah. He had no idea what the thing, the problem was, but he didn't want to investigate it further. It cost me a full service call. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I put the back panel on lightly and then it stopped working later that <laughs> evening. And then I took the back panel off and it started working again. So that's weird and stupid, but so far it seems like, okay, you just kind of got to uncover the machine because its brain swells inside its skull. And so you got to relieve the pressure, but like a partial skull removal or whatever it is like Bruce Lee had when he was had the allergic reaction and then died and they're trying to relieve pressure in his skull. This is the way I think of my- I was going to say, this my, is the, we're getting a real washing, look into the way you think. My washing machine is Bruce Lee's swelling brain. Oh my God. Yes. Uh, don't do hash, kids. Um- but no, eventually that workaround stopped working and mm -hmm. it just was not turning on at all. So we were investigating, ordering a new one from Costco, but then it also just started working again. So we're just relying- We're still going to get a new we're washing machine. We're going to get a new machine, washing machine. But I'm relying on its moods to try and get at least one load of laundry done every other day. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it has brief moments of lucidity before it lapses <laughs> back exactly into catatonia. Right. <laughs> uh, uh. Yeah, that's a So I hate thing. that. I hate that a lot. I hate that. I hate that we had to get our uh, pool enclosure refurbished because that costs a third the price of a pool enclosure. Uh, that's well, annoying to me. I'm happy that we're getting to do it, though. It's going to yeah, look good. I, no, I, mean, I don't like are... that our doorknobs are, like, uh, annoying. Yeah, we need to I don't to like that my office doesn't have AC in it, apparently. That is more annoying. Why is my office 80 degrees when the rest <laughs> of the house is 70? But I would say that I... I love the, being a homeowner, I but say, I hate this. The difference between us is that I... Don't work of, in an 80-degree office? Well, there's that. <laughs> but that I also have... You know, I came into buying a house and went, yeah, I know we're going to have to spend about this much money to just get things on the up and up. And I don't know that you were in the same mental mental place for that. So you're kind of like, why is this happening? No, no, I'm not complaining about the actual expenditure here. I'm complaining about the needing to do it. True enough. Yeah, the experience of suffering the issue is distinct to me from Washing the price of resolving Washing machine is annoying. uniquely annoying. Our AC almost overfloweth from its drip pan and cause problems. If yeah, only the complete bro <laughs> community member who we're very close with, shout out to you, Moshe, had not yeah. decided to gallivant into the attic space above <laughs> our garage because, quote, I'm just interested in seeing people's houses and their attics, end quote. <laughs> okay, bro. Well, well my, thanks for that. It worked yeah, out well. Thanks for that, because he knows that our drip pan was having a problem, that there might be clogs <laughs> in the drain pipes, and we got the AC repair people out, and they fixed the issue, and we avoided flooding into the garage, which was filled with cardboard boxes with a lot of our possessions in it, which would have ruined them, including my over-large board game collection, which, to reiterate, is entirely made of cardboard pieces, <laughs> which would have melted underneath that AC water leak. Yes. So thank you, Moshe. You preserved all the board games that we will be playing together. <laughs> well, now I'll talk about the stuff I like and the stuff, and the stuff I stuff hate. hate. So stuff I like is something stuff we like, which is Fauda. So we've been watching the show Fauda. I don't Fauda. like it. I love, love it. it. We've been watching it on Netflix. It is fantastic. So good. Oh my gosh. It was going to give me fodder for a later episode. Yeah, we're not, we're not going to get into Fauda. it too much. But all I want to say is we're loving it. We're having a hard time prying ourselves away from episode to episode. We want to just binge it, but you can't do that when you're an adult and you got a kid and you have to wake up in the mornings. You got billables. <laughs> exactly. So it's forcing us to enjoy it and take our time. Yeah. But I'm enjoying that. It's I, I'm, I, The reason I'm enjoying that is because I will be so sad when we get to the end of the season. It's like, it's become a thing we for gotta me. Get, we got to start watching bad movies again. Um, I realized talking about it the other day with other community members, Telling them about Topping Mall. Oh, such and a great And howling to your sister's and by werewolf. And good, I mean terrible. Yes, but only in the best way. We got to get back to that. We're watching too much good content recently. <laughs> but that is the thing that I am loving and I'm really enjoying, especially because it's in Hebrew. It's giving me a little opportunity to test my Hebrew. And also just seeing, you know, my people, the Jews. It's fun to see them in Israel and in a position of power because often when you watch movies, we're victims. We're victims. We're it's not a Holocaust the heroes film with or agency. something. So yeah. seeing like Jews being strong, that's a really cool thing. Yeah. 
Uh, it's also letting me know that I really need to learn Hebrew for real. I can do that annoying reform Hebrew school thing where I can pronounce, I can read the script, but I don't know what the content of the words is. Mm -hmm. So it'd be like me reading Latin. I'm going to pronounce it poorly and I don't know what the content <laughs> is, but the alphabet I'm familiar with and I can make noises. Nice. So I would like it not to be the case that I know Russian better than Hebrew, but that's where I'm at. Uh, it is giving me great fodder for uh, enjoying Hebrew Israeli names because yes. when people pronounce things on the show, the Israeli accent, uh, for example, how are you supposed to say Doron, the main character's name? Doron. Doron. Yeah, I will say to Abby, oh, it's Doron. <laughs> yeah, he's talking to no with no. Just this is this is what it sounds like to my ear. You don't get to call me a bigot. They're my people. <laughs> So now the stuff that I hate, and I don't think you have any idea that I'm going to say no, this. No, we discussed to make sure that we weren't going to have overlapping stuff we liked, but I have no notion of what you hate, which makes me a good husband. So it is the holiday of Sukkot, which is the festival of booths. We build a, a makeshift hut in our backyard, and we have to eat one meal in there each day at least. Um, but it's really a cool holiday, and growing up, it was my favorite holiday. But now we're in Florida <laughs> and at night, our sukkah is bug city, bug central. And I hate that because I really enjoy Sukkot. Like I really love sitting outside and eating and in sitting outside in the sukkah and just taking that in. And we walked out there and it was like there were gnats everywhere you Nets, could not sit skeeters, Ugh, you could not sit and eat and I, I want to celebrate the holiday outside and it's making it impossible and that's so far, really frustrating we've only really had meals in other people's suckers yeah. because on the festival days as you might refer to them when i was off of work we were going over to we just moved into this development we were going over to the homes of the other jews who live in the same development as we do Everyone else, uh, with the exception of uh, Moshe the Brosha, seems <laughs> to be in their 40s, but it's solid. They're great people. Yeah, we and, like them all. Uh, yeah, they have very impressive sukkahs. So that's uh, su Sukkot. Yeah, Sukkot. I oh, guess you're literally that plural, would be yeah. Yeah, Sukkot because it's the pearl sukkah. Um, but yeah, so it's all a good time. But Bug City is a bad time. and I hate it. Yeah, exactly. We I need to go get the bug zappers. We do. We also need me to receive exposure therapy and not despising being around insects from <laughs> Big Josh because Big Josh likes camping. And Big Josh is a friend of Jake. Big Josh is a very, he's a good friend of ours. Yes. Uh, he's a very good friend of ours and he loves camping in the outdoors. He is Big Josh because he is 6'2", 270, uh, most of which is muscle, all of which is power. And uh, he deadlifts like six. Was it close to seven now or is it six? I forget. It's like six he, yeah, he deadlifts an impressive amount. And also when you try to hug him, you literally cannot clasp your hands around his back. He is a powerful man. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Bug City is not my favorite. I don't need Bug Central in my sukkah. So hopefully we can pick up something to zap them before the next uh, meal the next that we holidays. host. Days. Yeah. So that is that is what I like and what I hate. And that is... Part one of this, this, discussion. this discussion and the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to our free podcast. But if you want to get even more content, make sure you head over to my Substack newsletter where you'll get access to a ton of exclusive content, including my weekly article, my book club, my AV club, and much more. It's only $7 a month. And if you pay for the whole year, you'll get two months for free. So thank you so much for listening. And before you go... If you liked this, the best thing that you can do for this podcast is to do whatever the method is, is showing approval, <laughs> liking it, subscribing, anything like that, but also sharing it with a friend. The more you enjoy this, the more you share it with others, the more you're going to get of it because that's the way it goes. Yeah, we would love if you shared it with everybody you know <laughs> or on your socials. So, But at least share it with the people you know who like it. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you guys in our next episode. Bye. Bye.